Hey, Dame. What's good? You know, I was curious. We've been home for a minute now recording remotely. And, you know, I just feel like I've had so much more time on my hands. I've been listening to more music, watching more shows, engaging with more podcasts. And I was curious, have you listened to any podcasts recently? Nope. Still no. I, I make this and I watch things and I love all you podcast listeners because you make this work possible. <laughs> but all you other podcasters, don't ask me. I have not heard your podcast. I'm really sorry. It is no hard feelings. I don't listen to my own. <laughs> if you were... If I were though, to a podcast. I know where I would go. Where would you go? I'm going to check out Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Yeah, I love independence. I love free things. This sounds like where I'm going to have to go uh, step into this game of podcast listening podcast for the people get it for free on the app store Education. hello hey your hello was sweeter than mine mine felt a little <laughs> too business like this is ergo it really is like i'm not lying to you this is ergo anyone who says that what they have is ergo they're lying <laughs> yeah those are dishonest people <laughs> Except for there's like a like a HVAC company also called Ergo, oh, but yeah, I try yeah. not to bring too much attention. But we to got that. real beef with them. <laughs> <laughs> Slash would accept the sponsorship. Uh, I'm Kiss. I'm David. <laughs> and what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city, world, and land for the more equitable and creative. How are you, Dame? Man, I am feeling active that's a positive way of saying busy i'm doing a lot of shit out here in these virtual and, and real streets but you know i am feeling grateful to be in a place where i can i can handle what is before me at least until the sun starts setting earlier and i get chronically depressed how are you <laughs> you gotta hit a real quick follow-up yeah, on the seasonal yeah, depression yeah, 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 just flip the script yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, How's your <laughs> i'm also impacted by the sun going down early unfortunately anyone who isn't i don't know what kind of we should just divorce stop. they've had from the natural Why don't we world just yeah. stop yeah shut it down <laughs> um but other than that i'm doing okay anxious as usual uh and holding on and we'll see <laughs> what happens over the next couple of weeks um but that's not what this is about what this is about is the continuation of our education suite today with the brilliant and wonderful Janie Pochelle of Shy Nation's Youth Council. So Janie is an educator. She actually, we didn't talk much about it, but she works in a forest school <laughs> right now. And we had the, the pleasure and the privilege to really have a grounding conversation about the way not only, you know, education and school spaces, uh, but the way our whole society, particularly the city of Chicago, um, is not in alignment with the appropriate history of this land, of the people that have been here, um, and just pulling out the ways that we need to learn from what has come and why we are. Yeah, I thought Janie was super gracious um, and thoughtful. And, and what often happens when I've talked with her in the past, and it really came through today, is that, you know, we're two people who like to complicate. And then when she says things to help us understand what's going on and what we need to do, it always sounds really simple because it often is. It's like, yeah, view people as people, connect to the land, try to understand where you are, listen to the people who know how to help this land grow and sustain and take care of the animals and beings and plants that live on it. It's kind of that simple. And yet we keep mucking it up. <laughs> we don't like the simple. But I was really grateful to get the reminder 
uh, from her today, as well as learn uh, a lot about the work that she's doing, the ways uh, that she cares for and teaches and helps the youth of Shy Nations Youth Council learn, as well as how uh, their work stepping into formal activism this summer uh, has been propelled by that learning and some of the challenges and unique opportunities that have been birthed from that. So thank you to Janie for coming through and talking with us. And definitely, if you're listening to this, you know, get informed and do whatever you can to support the very, very important work of Shine Nation's Youth Council um, has been a really great and beautiful year to see the way that they've emerged, um, not only here for Chicago, uh, but, you know, for our world. I think this is an important time of the uplifting of Black and Indigenous solidarity. And that's something we were able to discuss um, in detail here in this conversation. And it, it's really important for all of our liberatory futures. So it is an honor to be in this time and in the struggle with Jane. All right. Their donate link down below. If you agree with what Damon just said, just give them some money, please. And as a reminder, you can subscribe, rate, review, ergo on your podcast apps. Um, Yeah. Without further ado, let's continue our education suite with the one and only Janie Pochelle. Oh, yeah. We are so excited to be continuing our education suite today with the one and only guest that we have. (laughs) (laughs) Is the wonderful Janie Pochel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We gotta find a new sound. We've been I feel like these are getting a little uh not they're they're not old, but they're getting a little stale. Uh, I need to bring back out uh, my jungle cats. My wow, wow. <laughs> so so impressive. <laughs> A skill that none of us, maybe including David, knew he had. I had no idea I knew how to do that. <laughs> uh, so, Janie, let's start where we start every week. Uh, in this time, this moment, this season, how is the world treating you, and how are you treating the world? Um, I think like everybody, uh, like it's pretty unstable, like, uh, scary. A lot of people around us are just like dying all the time. A lot of close people to me are just dying of COVID and it doesn't feel like anybody's doing anything about it. So it's just kind of scary. Um, but what I've been doing is just trying to, you know, do my best and, using whatever platforms or, you know, connections I have to make sure that my community and my people are taken care of to the best of my ability. You know, like we grow food. We did a lot of mutual aid over the summer until we started focusing on like more of the activist stuff. And then we became unsafe to be going around our elders. So, you know, just trying to Mm. do the best we can, I can, you know. Yeah, it's one of those, it sounds like, in the long series of really impossible choices to make in this time of like, you know, how present, how pulled back to be physically, how does that mean in relation to family? Like super complex. Dame, there's like the follow-up that you've been asking mm-hmm. in these. Yeah, I want to set you up to do it. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate it. So it feels like very much like a continuation, but in the theme of this education suite that we're in, what has the world been teaching you in this season? Uh, I think, I didn't realize how many people were so willing to just like almost sacrifice themselves for like the betterment of the future and Mm. like how strong and resilient people actually are. Like we always say we're strong, we always say we're resilient, but when, you know, when we're getting our ass beat by the police or, you know, like 
you really see like people are resilient. They're getting beaten. They're like out there the next day still trying to fight, you know, the good fight. So um, it really taught me that like we're stronger than I thought we were. We're more resilient than I thought we were. And we're really supportive of each other. Even like cross communities, I, I started organizing across communities and and I didn't know like we had so many similarities. Like we have a lot of the same problems. We have a lot of the same targets on our back. So it just really like opened my eyes to like how much bigger the world is, but also how much more connected we really all are. Hmm. So just to kind of set the stage a little bit, you know, we've obviously mentioned Shenison's Youth Council on the show and it's come up in various ways. But I want to ask kind of this two-parter that I love to ask when it's when we talk to people who have like had an important hand in bringing something into the world like that. So one, what's the like one to two sentence description when someone's like, oh, what's the organization? What's the group? But then also for you at this point, how are you seeing this community that you're building, this this group, this organization, this entity? How do you define it for yourself? And what are you hoping that it's contributing in this time? I guess our thing that we say is it's a youth-led organization to create safe space for Native youth through arts, activism, and education. Like, that's our short little thing. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, it really was something... I wasn't the only one who started it. It was, like, my sister, some people in my former youth group, and some people from a youth group that was just before this one. And, like, we actually mixed the names. It was Shy Society and the Urban Natives of Chicago, so we became Shy Nations. And for me, I wanted it to be, like, a powwow performance dance because that's what my youth group was. And when we met the kids and some of the younger folks, they're like, well, we want to you know, fight for water. And I was like, oh, like, yeah, we can do that, you know? And like, they're like, would say things to me where they're like, what are you scared or something? You know? And, and I was scared, but you know, like, uh, you're like, no, I'm just trying to dance. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> no, you know, and they're little kids. So I'd be like, no, I'm not scared, you know? So I'd have to like, they'd always put me on the spot and like put me out there. And it was something that I was not used to. So they taught me a lot more and like just trusting their instincts and trusting their voice is something that I wasn't awarded as a youth. And a lot of youth aren't given is the space to really express themselves because I think like if I was able and my generation were able to stand up and like mold the community we have today um, without being like, you're just kids. What do you know? Then we'd be in a better place right now. So we don't feel like it's our place to take up that space anymore because it just because we're older and we really see that these youth are so smart. Their social awareness is crazy. Like, like when I think of like emojis, it's like an international language and these kids can all speak it to each other, you know? So mm. it was like this thing where people always say, well, they don't know this, but they're living, literally living in two worlds. They're living on the internet and then they have a real, you know, social life and like, they're always connected. And I thought that was really cool. And I thought it was important to like feed that and make sure that they know that their voice is at least important to me and the other adults that were with us. Like if nobody's going to listen to you, we're going to listen to you. And if someone's going to listen to us, we're going to tell them to listen to you. Like our community didn't have the courage to stand up to like abusive men before. And these kids are like, we're not, we're not building up with that. So someone's got to say something. And, you know, we said something and now it's, 
a really complicated place because the older generation thinks, you know, that's none of our business. But the rest of us, like, this is a public health issue. Um, So there's, like, things that they've really taught me. And I just, like, try to, like, I'm really good at, like, calendars and giving people rides, you know, and making sure that they're together, <laughs> feeding them. So like, I like took like this anti-role and then we take like criticism, like pretty serious um, because like, we think that a lot of times those things come from a place of love, even if it's like, like some hateful things, we think like we could learn something from this. So about four or five years ago, they were saying like, we don't listen to our elders. Like we are mean to our elders. So we kind of created like this, elder circle, this elder council to teach us things. And then they got mad at the elders we picked. <laughs> like, uh, so mm-hmm. like there was like no winning, but at least we, we were able to like have our elders with us on a, these youth trips and really like put me in my place because I was the adult before and I was fucking up all of the time. And when I had somebody else being like, Janie, like you shouldn't do that. I was like, I never thought about that. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't do that. So, and like when things get heated within the youth, when we had the elder with us, she was really good at just like calming everything down, asking the right questions. Um, And it was like something that was so simple that I never even would have thought of, you know? So Mm. it's really an important thing. And then like, as we started creating physical space, um, that's really where I think, like it's really become like more of a community when it used to just be this group of people. And now that we have like the garden, um, we have a spot at the Aloha Center. Those two places are physical places we're able to build community. And I think that's what we've been missing for a really long time. Cause we were trying to like fit into other community spaces that really weren't mm. melding well with our ethics and our uh, like we were in Catholic churches and, Right. You know, like, yeah, I mean, it makes sense with, you know, it, it, space being so contested in Chicago on this land in general, that makes sense of like the kind of relationships we're trying to build. It's much harder to do that in a place <laughs> that doesn't like structurally have those things in mind. Right. Yeah. Um, or the, the kind of power dynamics in that. Um, so let's talk about place a little bit. I've, you know, seen so many beautiful photos of the garden. I know there's so much that you all have done out of there. I've driven past it a million times. In the building of that space, both like physically and in terms of, you know, we we know that how you make a space is so important to what happens in it. So what did you want to make sure was there? Well, the first thing we, since we got it in November, the very first thing we wanted to do was like, tell people like, hey, we're we're going to be here now. Like American culture, society, they only understand Indians or natives as like teepees. So we pulled up a couple teepees and threw them up and we just <laughs> started meeting there. And even though like we we weren't legally supposed to be there until April and November and we're like, well, we're just going to set up right now. And we used that time to where we could like start digging up and start building stuff to bring our community in and ask them, like, what do we want to see here? And it was something that I've done before for more, like, academic purposes. And it was a lot Mm -hmm. of the same things. And they just wanted a place to gather, like a place where we can have all of our medicines in one spot. Because, like, we have medicines. It's our land. So they're everywhere. 
but you got to go find them. So just to like make it like a kind of a beacon or a hub for Native people. And we wanted them to like any Native person just walk by, drive by and be like, oh, like this is for real. These are real Natives in Chicago. And like we know there's thousands, like 10, 60,000 of us here. But like I only know a couple hundred. And when we built that space, just from people driving by and being like, hey, um, are you Native? And just getting to know each other, we really built like people I've never even met before who've been here, we just started building a place. So we wanted it to be a community space. We wanted to have our medicines. We wanted to be able to have space for just the Native community to like decompress and, you know, have like our own space and then also like grow our food. And then um, since we're in Albany Park and Albany Park takes good care of us, we want to make sure that there was the place for the people in Albany Park to gather as well and grow food and, you know, become a community. And we also opened it up for like activist space, like decompression and a lot of that stuff. So it was something that the community, even though it was mostly Native people, we weren't, we were like, well, we only want to take this much of it, just a little bit and, you know, have that for ourselves. But we want to make sure that we built this environment so everybody can come in and learn about Native people and learn about what it means to like be in a place. Like one of the things that we say is when someone's saying like, this is how it is or how about this, we'll be like, well, you don't even know where you are. <laughs> you think this is Europe or something, you know, like you don't even know where you are. <laughs> so um, we want people to know where they are. You know, we want them like, this yeah. is Chicago. This is the kind of landscape it is. These are the kind of people that are here. And this is the historical relationship between people and land. And just because you're not related to this land, like DNA, it doesn't mean you can't have a, you know, a kinship with land. Mm. Yeah, th that's really powerful. The, the, the idea of knowing where you are, almost as a path to knowing who you are. That that just really impacted me, just just the way that you phrased that. <laughs> yeah, man, white people do try to make everything Europe all the time. <laughs> it's like, it's like Europe wasn't even that hot in the first place. That's why I came over here. But yeah. <laughs> I I I, I want to pull out more of this communal learning model that that I hear you speaking of. But I want to trace a little bit more of your learning because you named that there are ways that you address some of the things that you had to like kind of relearn through our academic space in building knowledge and community, the, the the process of those inputs are just much different and rooted in relationship in ways that are so different from what, you know, the academic space provides. So I just want to like dig that out a little bit deeper of like, what was the difference in your learning that this space provided for you as a facilitator and shaper of it? Yeah, I think like Western learning is very like, this is how it is. These are the facts. And a lot of times, like, those aren't even the facts, you know? So just, like, <laughs> when you're when you're just outside and you're just learning naturally, you're just being there, you know, like, there's a lot of things that just happen naturally. And in communal learning, there's a lot of plants that just introduce themselves to the garden when we started pulling a lot of the invasive weeds or not even, like, just non-native plants. We were pulling the things that would hurt the land, that would hurt people. Mm. Um, hurt like the birds or all those things. So we were pulling a lot of those plants and a lot of new plants were being introduced there. And like, we didn't know all of them, but if, if we didn't have all those people around us to say, Hey, I know this plant, I know how to use this. Then like, we wouldn't even know, you know, and we didn't know how to build anything. You know, we have like benches, a shed, like uh, tables, the garden beds. We didn't know how to do that. Like we just, 
knew our relationship to place um, just based on like growing up in um, an intertribal community. My dad and mom would take me to like the ball woods and leave us in the forest all day. And we'd like lay on a tree and chill all day and like watch what's happening around us and how much that taught me and like understanding like um, my role in these places the way the forest preserve is now, they think there was no people there before. And we know that people are the one that shaped this landscape and why it's so diverse and why all these plants are right next to each other. Like there's people that did that. We did that. So remembering those relationships to land and place through like just being out there and walking around and you know, asking questions and like people telling us stories. Cause like my mom and dad know very little um, compared to how much knowledge there is in our communities. And just being able to be like left with an auntie or left with, you know, somebody else and even of a different tribe. Um, I learned a lot about things that I never would have known before. But also like it's mm-hmm. difficult because a lot of times we'd have to leave the city to learn about our culture, you know, and we would do that. Like we would leave the city to go to ceremony, but we could do all that stuff right here. And this is where we're from. This is our home. So, and if it's our home now, and it was our home 200 years ago, why do I have to go to Canada now? You know, like, this is where I'm from. Asking those questions within our spaces, within our community. um, And it's a lot of younger people because older folks think like, this is how it is. Like, you do it this way and that's it. And a lot of like our culture is like, you don't do this, you don't do this. There's a lot of rules, but there's also a lot of space to grow as like the world changed, you know, like everything changed. Mm -hmm. So we have to change along with it because we can't do those things anymore. So like when we do maple tapping, we had to completely change the way that looks from how we learned it. When we do like our planting, like our mounds, all that stuff, we have to change that what that is because like this is a city. There's a lot more dangers in the air for us as people that are going to get into our food if we don't know about those things. And that's where like the academic parts come in is because we need to know what that damage is because naturally we want, how would we measure that? So, you know, sending in our maple sap to like the department of natural resources to see what kind of contaminants can get inside of that, like sending our berries, our roots, all those things to make sure that we're not poisoning ourselves while trying to like regain our knowledge. So like a lot of things were okay. The Maple Zap wasn't. So we had to completely change what that looks like with like closed containers. Um, We couldn't use just dripping out. We had to like close everything up and make sure the sap didn't come in contact with the air. Um, A lot of the root vegetables we couldn't eat unless we put them above ground, you know, like it was like things we couldn't just go outside and harvest. Like we were we were doing this, but, you know, we didn't know that we could be hurting ourselves. Yeah. I mean, the, the dystopia of a raised bed, because it's the reality and normalized, you, you, you work with what you have. But there is something just so uniquely violent about the idea of the ground being poisoned in the air. Like just, yeah, yeah the, the, you need to build an artificial container to simulate what the ground can do and what the earth can do is really... Yeah. And like at the garden, we're, you know, creating our own soil. We're like remediating what soil is theirs. We probably ain't going to have enough time to do all of this because it takes like seven 
10 years. Mm -hmm. But if we did have the time, we'd be able to do this naturally. We're hoping that, you know, we can convince the city to just let us, because they want to like bring in dirt from Iowa and throw it on top of the garden, you know? And we're like, we're not from Iowa, you know? (laughs) Why do we need, why you take it? They're literally taking the land from underneath us. And put a new land on there, you know. And yeah, sounds sounds familiar. Yeah, like yeah. what if you were the garden? You know, like what if you were this empty lot? And then all of a sudden, all these natives are like, "We're gonna heal this. We're gonna put in, you know, stuff that's gonna make this like pull the toxins out of the soil and make it healthier." And then all of a sudden, they're like, "Well, you you gotta go now. We're gonna put some clean stuff in here, you know." And we just don't think mm-hmm. that's right because we think of the garden as like a living space a living being and we have this relationship with like this physical actual land so all we're asking is like can you put dirt on top of it instead of like taking it away and like putting it somewhere else <laughs> and like we, we even ask question like what happens to the dirt and they're like nobody's ever asked that before we're like oh like after it's taken away you're yeah like what they, like excavate? what do you do with this what happens to it where does it go you know and they're like we don't know nobody asks these questions but, but it's somewhere <laughs> yeah that's what we're like where you know and they're like well maybe we can get you some dirt from wisconsin or and we're like yeah i guess that's better <laughs> like but this is like it's just this weird thing that we didn't know like we needed all of these yeah. there's all these rules mm. and the rules continuously change too as we move along so i want to go back to something that you said when you were talking about when you were a kid just being posted up on a tree and seeing what you saw and seeing what happened and seeing what passed and i'm gonna give you a leading question and you'll tell me if i'm right or wrong sound good okay I would guess just from how you were talking about your your role as a kind of like mentor and guiding figure for the young people in the space now, uh, that what you're doing with them is probably not that different from how you interacted when you were just sitting as a kid watching what, what happened. Do you feel like there's any link between like how you view your relationship to the young people that you're helping build this space for? Just kind of like watching, seeing what happens, seeing how you can help, seeing how you can feed, rather than trying to like decide. Does that feel like a parallel at all? Yeah, definitely. Force a metaphor, like I do. Um. Well, I see like all of these young people, like they're individual beings. You know, like these are they have their own thoughts, their own feelings, their own strengths and weaknesses. And I think what I do is I try to find what I see as their strengths and like try to promote them to do those things. You know, like not everybody's a public speaker not everybody is a dancer, not, you know, but I want to make sure that whatever they're good at, whatever that makes them feel good and what they feel like they can give to the world, that they have the opportunity and the platform to, to do those things and to share those things with other people. Every single one of them is different. And there's like a different relationship that I have with them and, What's most important is that they become confident in what they're good at so they can become leaders and then like lead other people, you know, is what my yeah. hope would be. To some of the themes of the series, it's so different from what happens inside a classroom, right? What you just described, it's like in many ways antithetical to it. I know you and these young people, like there's the space you're building and then they're also, you know, I would imagine in various ways, you know, they're in the rest of the their lives in the world, Right. So how does the fact that they're sitting in classrooms across Chicago that you're not leading, how is that impacting the work that you're doing in the garden and the work that you're doing building these relationships with them? 
Um, I think one of the hardest things is like, when they come and say this happened to me in school, like, I mean, there was a time where I just went to that school and like started yelling at people, you know, like, um, <laughs> a good, a, a useful strategy. Sometimes. Yeah. Like, just cause like, I don't know what to do, but I feel like I gotta do something, you know, yelling at somebody, I can do that. But just like being scared for them, knowing that like nothing really has changed since I went to school. So knowing the, like the things that they're going to have to experience and like, just from the teachers, just from the, you know, curriculum, like the violence they're going to experience just from something that everybody has to go through. It's like scary to me, but also like you want to prepare them to be able to speak up for themselves. Because like, I know that's like, was the hardest thing is to say, hey, like, that's not right. I know a different history or I learned that I learned something different and or like even come because like I'm a researcher. So I'll send the kids to school with like some research papers about what they're learning is wrong or like go in there and speak to the teachers or present to their classrooms or like it gives me anxiety to think about them being alone, you know, in a school, being the only one learning about these things, just like trying to prepare them uh, emotionally, like for those things. And like the fact that a lot of them are deemed like, not as smart as other people because they don't get good grades. When I know these kids are geniuses, you know, if they were just given the opportunity to show what their strengths are instead of trying to be put into this little box. So um, just like trying to help them in those ways. And one of the things that we would do is teach them about plants, um, teach them about trees and be like, this is where you're from, you know, like you feel out of place because you're in place. You're the only one in place here. Mm. So these are your relatives. This is your land. Like feel confident in that, feel, you know, safe in that aspect. So when they had a hard day at school, at least they can go outside and be like, oh, there's some milkweed. You know, milkweed knows what I'm going through, you know, like something. You know, like, <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in the idea of like, this is your place and that's why you feel out of place, like displacement at home, almost in a sense. You know, I think this whole conversation, uh, one of the things I'm really excited to like uplift or, or, or be in community with you uh, is because I think the solidarity between the experience of Black Indigenous people, I think there is a, a heightened consciousness about it now. And even like within many or my own experience, like even starting to connect to the intersection, right, of of uh, within a lot of Black community, there is a lot of Native Indigenous lineage that gets erased or we're mm-hmm. disconnected from. Uh, and I think the school as a site, um, as we've been trying to say in this whole suite, um, is a place for us to kind of see some of that solidarity and some of that intersection. And I, I kind of want to ground or ask for you, when you hear or, or or feel or see this displacement happening in school spaces or, you know, when you when you feel that urge, like, oh, I'm going to go yell at these people. Um, yeah. <laughs> how, how, how present is the the history of how schools have been harmful um, in this series? One of the things we've been saying a lot is that, you know, education is powerful and liberatory, uh, but school comes from a colonial history um, and it is still doing that. And so in the ways in which public schools, charter schools, even private schools, box and confined, there is a a cultural and political and social violence that is happening. And I think how Black children are treated in schools and how Indigenous children have been treated in schools really can help us, like, 
make that less of a metaphor and more real when we talk about like decolonization. Um, so yeah, th- that was a lot. I, I acknowledge that, <laughs> that I do a lot. So, so you, for you, when you see what's happening in schools now, how much of the history is, is present? Because for me, it, it feels like such a deep injury. Yeah, I think, like, from what I understand, like, modern school came right from residential schools where they were trying to kill the Indian and save the man. And it's not much different than it was then. You know, like, it's a lot of the same curriculum, a lot of the same propaganda, and it's a lot of, like you're bad, all of this stuff is good. And you know from your history that a lot of these things weren't great, you know? <laughs> and why are they here? It kind of sucks. Like, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the idea that, like, we're taught in school that nobody was here before colonization. There was just these couple Indians and then everything else was just open and there was nothing there. You're like, whoa, like, we were there. You know, like, our people were over there. Knowing that that's being erased and like thinking that history starts at this one point, like history started when Columbus got here, like, and the only other history before that is in Europe. And, you know, there's some ancient Egypt sprinkled in there and that's it. Like, and we know that's not true. We know like there's thousands of years of history and everywhere else. Why are we pretending like this is something important when really it's just like a violent erasure of all of this knowledge from all of these people. Like when we think of decolonization, a lot of Native people are anti-Black and don't think of Black liberation as an Indigenous issue. But the colonization of America was the genocide and the land stealing of Indigenous people and then the slavery of Black people. So if we're going to talk about decolonization, we have to not only rematriate relationships between Indigenous people's land and way of life and government we also have to, you know, abolish slavery in all forms. And I think school is one of these places where it's still that slavery, that assimilation, these residential school ideas. And even if you look at, like, who are the teachers? Who are teaching people? It's like 80% white women. What does a white woman know from the suburbs know about growing up in Chicago? Let alone the hundred years before. Yeah, and yeah. let alone what's been happening for, like, yeah, for hundreds of years and what the education has been saying about our people. Um, like, we're not smart. Like, what we're doing, like, savage animals, you know, all these bad things, and it's not really true. A lot of scientific innovations were, you know, taken from Indigenous peoples from around the world, like, a lot of the medicines are our medicines. A lot, most of the food we eat are our foods, like from the Americas. So why aren't we getting credit for this when, like, these are cultivated foods? These aren't wild, just growing everywhere. When you were saying that, like, the fallacy of history starting with the rival, it also got me thinking about in the education realm, like the fallacy of all the other disciplines also being in that point. So science and uh, medicine and all these things that you're pointing to. You mentioned it earlier, but I think it is really an important piece of that kind of like remediation of the story is this idea that the plant life and the ecosystems were cultivated over hundreds and thousands of years with intention, with care, with uh, like scientific precision and (laughs) brilliance and knowledge. Yeah. Part of the erasure of the people is also partly the erasure of like that, uh, like remarkable 
achievement of building a sustainable ecosystem. That work is remarkable. I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but it's just like, I know for me as someone who had to do the unlearn, is doing the unlearning and is unpacking like that idea was so like profound of like, oh, this plant put next to this one creates this that leads to that, that can sustain this different type of life. It's a technology that actually couldn't have been created somewhere else because those things didn't grow there, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like that science is catching up to the things that we already know, you know, like one of the things, like how we say, like, see you later, whatever, like, we'd be like, oh, we're all related. And like five years ago, 10 years ago, they're like, hey, guess what, everybody? This Higgs boson (laughs) makes us all related. And it was just something that's like natural. Like, it's just a way, like a saying, you know, like, Knowing that science is always catching up to what we've always known, it's really hard to be like, oh, yeah, I knew that because some people are like, no, you didn't. You know, like science just discovered no, but it's this, a real you know? strong. I told you so, though. <laughs> yeah. You know, but, and <laughs> like, you know, Chicago was a city before colonization. You know, like there was mm. millions of people sustainably living here. There's millions of people living in cities all across North and South America sustainably. And they act like you can't do that anymore. Like there's too many people like. No, there's not too many people. There's too much production. You know, like there's plenty of stuff mm-hmm. here that we could live forever on just what's already produced. We all like it's like cannibalism or like eating your children. Like that's the name of it. It's like this culture is like cannibalistic. It eats its future. You know, why would you do that when, you know, everything was given to us to live forever? Just fine with each other right here. You know. Dame, it got me thinking about some of the, and you you really kind of brought me to some of this study, the academy in that catching up, starting to listen to, pay attention and excavate some of these histories of what was happening on this land for thousands of years. So, you know, areas that the history books before said were, you know, there, like you said, there were few people living there, that there are these trade routes that have, you know, quinoa in what's now Canada that was from Peru, and there were cities all along these rivers and you know, some of the the artifacts being barely buried at this point. Like, it doesn't take much, but there's been this, like, rooted interest in not looking for them because, right, because it feeds this story. Yeah, and ex- an explicit ignorance, you know, like, even the ways we separate the continents is a colonial concept, right? Like, they, it was an, an interconnected trade route of civilizations, yeah. you know, like the Amazon, for example, like we keep saying, like these things did not just grow or happen. The Amazon, as we're starting to see, is like an overgrown garden uh, mm-hmm. that was curated and created. And now it is something so massive because the people were displaced. And so, yeah, it's it's really, I think, using the land as the classroom to understand who we are, what our, how our bodies function, um, and how we got these connections and relationships to each other. It's really just about an erasure of violence is is what, mm-hmm. you know, I am seeing kind of just across the board as like a almost a human reflex whenever you're in a dominant position. Similar to like the conversation you were saying about like violence in the home or gendered violence, right? Like I think as a society, there's a like, we don't look at what was done. Um, mm-hmm. We want to say that like human beings only got here 13,000 years ago yeah. <laughs> um, as a way to to reaffirm this ignorance. So yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's fucked up. <laughs> we found a thing we agree on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Definitely. And like these trade routes, like there's tobacco in Egypt. Like they're digging up tobacco right. from America like thousands of years before they say anybody could possibly do those things, you know, and we know like Pacific Islanders had some of the most 
you know, advanced seafaring people, like, yeah, you know, like even like our roads today are our trails, you know, like those are our roads and they just renamed them and act like it's theirs and they brought civilization, you know, like when the, these highways are our roads, like they've been here. Yeah, nobody nobody should be getting parking tickets. <laughs> yeah. Indigenous people definitely should be getting parking tickets. <laughs> So I'm curious because also I've just been really proud to see the political activity and activism and organizing as we've been in this rebellious time this year. In hearing the story, I feel like this preparing and reconnecting with the land and making of communal space felt like a training ground or a breeding ground for this really robust summer or, you know, year of, you know, this decolonial, anti-colonial fight and resistance and connectivity between Black, Latinx, Indigenous folks, um, you know, Chi Nation Youth Council has emerged as a really, really powerful space. Uh, and so I want to connect like these three nodes of like land, learning, and politics, because I think the way that y'all are moving is a really great example uh, of how they are all like one connected force. So so does that sound accurate? Does it feel like there are ways that like the learning of that November through April time prepared for there to be such a robust May through October where we're seeing statues toppled and we're seeing, you know, these symbolic gestures as like educating the populace or the city at large? Does, does that feel far off? No, I think that's um, pretty like dead on. Like we really thought about the space being this, you know, intersectional place where we can learn from each other and like really get the best, like everybody can't know everything and learning different perspectives and how different people live in the same place as you really helps you be able to change what your future is going to look like and how the state is going to interact with your people because there's like Chicago should be for black and brown indigenous people because this is who's in the city, you know, like, and it's not, <laughs> right. it's not like that, you know, like there's all these people who dominate and want to like say, we have to use this space for this. Um, only these things are important and they want to take from this community and give to this community that doesn't need anything, you know? So we really wanted to make a space that people could come and feel comfortable and just being able to be like, we have this garden Here's the combination. You can use it anytime. And just like letting other activists use the space just to gather or just to have a fire or, you know, swing in the hammock, just like use the space for anything. And um, like building this network, I know like when everything started happening and we had to make the decision if we keep on with mutual aid or if we, you know, go into the streets and like, you know, we chose to go into the streets. And when we were out there, that's when we started meeting a lot of people who were, you know, similar experiences. Um, I know, like, the kids really look up to, like, Good Kids, Bad City. They, Our kids were always nervous about, you know, calling people out too hard. And then we see Good Kids, Mad City being like, mm -hmm. oh, fuck this. Like, Not an issue you know, for them. Like, yeah. <laughs> and we're like, you could do that? You know, like, we didn't know we could do that. And because we were very like kind of shy, not really wanting to like put ourselves in the way, like especially with like the George Floyd happened. We really just wanted to be supportive. Like what can we do for the black community in this time? And we just want to have space. Like you guys need some decompression. You need like, what do you need? 
we can help you in this way. Like we'll be in the streets with you, but also like, what can we do outside of that? You know, like, cause like, it's really hard to march every single day. It's really hard to like emotionally to be connected to all these people and seeing the violence and like having to be confronted with the police every day. That's emotionally taxing. So we wanted to like do anything that tries to like ease some of that tension. So we really just didn't want to like not do anything or only focus on our community like we were doing because we're going to need each other as like this like escalates. And so I know that it's a potential like point of pain and has been difficult in the the days to, to follow, but it seems like that really culminated in some ways around the protest that escalated in the ways it did. And and so, you know, we don't have to go too far down there. I know it's been covered in various other ways. Mm-hmm. We'll put in the show notes. There's a great interview that you did with Southside Weekly, kind of breaking that down a little bit more. But now being a, a little bit of time removed from there, what did that day and the, the days after teach you about how do we, you know, adapt for, for the next stages of the fight? We weren't prepared for violence at all. And I think since then, we have to prepare. Like, this was supposed to be something that was beautiful and symbolic and all of these things. And it turned immediate, like as soon as the police were confronted, they just started beating kids. Like they were just crazy violent. And we seen firsthand that they don't care about who's committing crimes. You know, it was these people over here who are attacking the police, but now you're going to start beating a bunch of children who are running away. You know, like, why would they do that? Um, so like we seen that they don't want to stop killing us. They don't care about us. So now we have to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and taking care of each other. Um, and I think that really solidified that idea. Cause like we went into it with that idea, like, you know, the state has never taken care of us. We've been taking care of us. And I think that just solidified that and really gave us something that was, um, this was like one of the first times in decades that black and indigenous people intentionally gathered and it was met with the most violent since the last time black and indigenous people got together. So like it's so important for the for for the history, right? To to for one, for that solidarity and that action to happen, but also to tell the world that still in 2020 this attack is continuing, right? So now we need to look at the gap in that history differently. Like that violence was occurring the whole time. We just weren't naming it as such. Yeah, we just weren't putting lights on those things. You know, we weren't focusing on those. And I even think in Minneapolis, like where George Floyd was murdered is a native neighborhood. So when like those buildings started going on fire, we were hearing natives like like war whooping, like cheering it on. We were seeing native people in the streets. We were hearing like these res accents, you know, like, we seen it firsthand, like this solidarity was immediate in Minneapolis, which was like the epicenter. And we wanted to make sure like we do that here too. You know, like Chicago is a native word. You know, this is a native place. And this violence is happening on our land too. We consider like these are our people, all the people who are here are people, you know, no matter what color they are. But we want to make sure like if you're going to be people, you have to act like people, you know, like. Can't be killing each other. Can't be killing us. You know? So like, just very base yeah. level agreement. <laughs> yeah, and like seeing seeing that violence was like it's always in the back of your head that that might happen, you know. Right. Um, but since then, we're like, 
this probably will happen. And the few times that we've um, showed up for each other since, like the police presence was ridiculous. Even we had on Indigenous People's Day, we just had a barbecue. It's Black Indigenous barbecue. And the police were waiting there when we got there. They were harassing us all day. They were threatening to arrest us. And we were just having a barbecue. And it just happened to be a bunch of Black and Indigenous people. You know, It's beautiful. It is. So I, I want to vision with you because like i feel like we are, are are deep in the principle of the connection between human life and land and like we need to figure out how to create new spaces that build up our communities for us to learn how to be the people we're supposed to be right like to be like act like we're in the place where we are mm-hmm. but i have a, a very tangible question that i want to ask and i'm embarrassed about <laughs> Um, so yeah, so we want to be with the land and I feel like we can start to talk about like what educational spaces should be and how they should be land-based. Help me understand the indigenous knowledge and history of how to survive winter. That is the thing (laughs) I've always been really curious about, about Chicago as an indigenous space and like bet money, like I'm trying to learn outside too. What are we, what is a better way <laughs> for us to be addressing what we're about to be going through? <laughs> oh, I, feel like, so I feel like there's a knowledge gap. I feel like there's something missing. So before yeah. we can talk about mm-hmm. what outdoor learning should be like, help me understand a process winter. Um, I mean, I think it's like <laughs> we just have a fire, you know, a lot, but like our clothes, <laughs> like, like <laughs> it's not, it's not enough. No, like, but like a lot of our like, Clothing is, you know, because we're from Great Lakes, so our clothing is made for, like, winter. You know, like, it's insulated. It's a lot of leather. Stuff that keeps you I am you short warm. on leather. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, if you're... And just, like, how we adapt it, it's just... We just layer up. If we don't have, like, you know, a coat or, like, a blanket, like, something, it's just a lot of wool, a lot of leather, and just, like, layers, like... But it's hard to be outside all day, you know, like it. And, but like in the teepee and our wigwam, um, we like make it to where it's warm inside, at least. We're mm-hmm. still worried about like in COVID, could we even do those gatherings indoors or we're, are we yeah. going to have to be in the open? So like we're still making those decisions. But I think just like being prepared and having a space to go and warm up, I think is the most this isn't what damon damon wanted like there's like some, we don't something that we've just been missing all it's like no you're <laughs> no. just gonna be cold you're just gonna be cold yeah you just yeah prepare and deal with it yeah <laughs> fires and i like yeah <laughs> that's it <laughs> to to that same kind of mode of question um you know in understanding this moment you mentioned the pandemic in relation to how things adapt and, and how practices adapt um, I'm wondering whether there's any, and you know, not that I expect you to have like, you know, all of the knowledge of everyone, um, <laughs> but for you, is there anything that you've been carrying through this pandemic time that's been helpful for you in just making sense of this time and figuring out like, how do we adapt and, and keep holding space together? It's different for a lot of Native people because this isn't like the first pandemic we've been through, right. you know, like based around um, like smallpox or you know, the flu or tuberculosis, a lot of our culture changed in those times. And we had to think about like, those things aren't going to not happen anymore. So Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the stuff we do is already outside. It's 
But the hard thing was like, we're very social community and we're very close with our elders. And now the thing that's going to protect our elders is by not being around them at all. White people are like, we've been doing that for years. (laughs) (laughs) We're set. We got buildings for them. We got a whole system. Yeah. And like, what what does that mean for some of like, even our youth members, like they live with their elderly family members because like we live in whole families and houses. So like, what does it look like? And how do we protect each other and like consistently being conscious of those things um, with each other and then like having to trust each other to say like, hey, I just traveled to Indiana, you know, like maybe I shouldn't come around. It's just like everybody else. We've been having to change a lot of stuff, but also a lot of this is already embedded in our culture. You know, like we not like quarantine, but there's times of the year, times where you take yourself away and you're just kind of alone for a while um, with yourself. So Mm -hmm. something that's been there because we've been targeted for bio-warfare this whole time, you know? So while it's not new, like, it's still, like, scary. Our people are still dying at one of... And in Chicago, what's been tested, what we know, natives are dying at a higher rate than anybody, but we're always being put into other... So there's not even consistent mm. statistics about what's happening in our communities in Chicago. And we know what's happening on the reservation and it's just uncontrolled, like right. nothing's happening. And a lot of people even left the reservation and came to Chicago during these times because they there's no hospitals there. Like what if they get mm. sick? Like they're better off traveling across the country and being homeless in a place where there's a hospital than they felt like they could on the reservation. So we were taking in people at the same time as like trying to help our elders. We're putting up people who just moved here in hotels. We're trying to find them housing. There was a lot of support with that. Anytime we wanted to do some sort of mutual aid, we've had people being able to provide us with the funds to do that. I think in that kind of like, um, like the, the kind of waveform of that, like the crests and the troughs of when you're more connected and then in some of that more like individual space or pulled back space, who was I think it was Bill Ayers Dame, correct me if I'm wrong, who said the thing about like it's those rest times where you can do some of the visioning and the the um imagining of what you want to build when things reemerge. Mm-hmm. Um so just being a little mindful of time. I- I'm I'm curious for you. It can be as abstract or concrete as you want, and it doesn't have to be that this is the only space where it happens. But 10, 20, 50 years down the line, where do you want the young people of your world to be learning? I would hope that in, you know, 20, 30, 40 years that our young people will be able to learn about the history of this land, like what's been happening here for thousands of years and be able to see those things, like being able to see a forest or um, plants or like not having to go outside and just see lawns all the time, having more space for like people and nature to be together and not just for cars or just for people. Um, I would just hope that there'd be not only place for people to learn, but also for places for people to learn from the land and from plants and, um, natural ways of being instead of just making up, this is what's natural. That's completely unnatural to actual humans, you know? (laughs) If there's one thing that we've like, as a through line, it's like, there's a lot of things that are being very adamantly stated as facts that are objectively not facts. (laughs) 
Yeah. That's what I've heard. It's like a lot of people going like, this is facts. And you're yeah. going, well, you're yelling <laughs> and you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question. Um, and it's a two-parter. Uh, the first part is, you know, we, we've been kind of talking on this macro level. We've bounced around between a bunch of different themes. Uh, but the reality is, is that for so many parents and guardians and people looking after young people right now, like the act of schooling and the act of learning is so fraught and difficult between what online learning looks like for some people and then just the like the kinds of care that's required without the ability to have the help of others in your community. So one is there maybe not advice, but like anything that you want to say to parents and people looking after young people, any nugget for for a parent or a guardian taking care of someone right now? And then the second part is, do you want to give a shout out to any teacher in or out of school uh, that's been really impactful for you in your life? I think this e-learning and the way that this has been set up, I think is very intentionally difficult and it's not made to promote healthy learning. You know, um, even though it sounds like difficult or crazy, I think that we have to be okay with our kids not learning to the full capacity this year as they would at other times just to protect their mental and emotional and physical health. Cause I have a niece and nephew on e-learning all day and the, and not only that, the youth in the youth council this is it's like a really difficult thing for them to do physically um but also like they're not even learning much you know like it's not even uh effective so it seems kind of pointless and i think just being able to you know kind of let go of that like not really let go of it all the way but like being okay with maybe your kid's going to repeat this grade and trying to make sure that they're getting some kind of education through, you know, like family discussions or we've been reading the same book or listening to the same audiobook as a family and talking about it, but making sure that there's some sort of learning that's happening. Uh, but mostly we're, I think people really need to focus on like the emotional level of what's happening, what, our kids because like they're being traumatized just from you know living in a pandemic and they're being desensitized from hundreds of thousands of people just dropping dead that's not okay and they're not even speaking about this uncontrolled pandemic when they're talking about the difficulties of e-learning not only that like there's access issues you know like our wi-fi goes down all the time and the kids aren't in school now um so what happens to everybody else, like there's not enough Wi-Fi for everybody. So we, I think we have to be comfortable with like trying to, you know, go back to a, a more natural way of learning with each other and making sure that they're emotionally cared for and able to like kind of take care of themselves. Cause like we're at home now, like, you know, they have to have their own space. Uh, they need to learn household skills you know, I think it's just a really difficult time for everybody and especially if you got kids because you have to take care of them, but they should also be getting some kind of education and the education being provided by the school right now is really worse than it's ever been. Mm. Mm. And then the, the second part, is there a teacher of some sort at some point in your life that you want to give a shout out to? Uh, yeah, I think I've had a, a lot of teachers, especially in 
the community. Um, there's a lot of elders. I know one, uh, Angie Decora taught me about having a relationship with Planter. Like she seemed like this crazy woman, but you know, she just had a relationship. Like to me as a kid, like an urban kid, even like you, like oh, you talking to Plant? You know, like it was really strange to me, but. Like now I, I understand like she didn't like it wasn't this like human to human kind of relationship. It was like a different mm. kind of relationship that she had. And she showed that to me. So she was important. Like my mom and my grandma taught me a lot, my dad. Um, and I guess in school there was one teacher. Her name was Miss Egan. I had her in like first, second and third grade. She was like the first person to um, let me learn on my own and get better at what I was doing because I was better at like I already knew how to read in kindergarten so like first second third grade a lot of the kids are learning to read and instead of having me sitting there in the classroom learning stuff I already knew she would let me go and read books on my own or like you were just running through the picture books like, yeah no <laughs> yeah like God. you know I was like in chapter books and she just let me do that and then she encouraged me to do I wasn't good at math she encouraged me to do math and she did it in a way that was like a self-competition, which I was really good at. And she'd do like these mad minutes where we'd have to like do a hundred times tables in a minute. And I became so good at that, that like she would call other teachers in to watch me like kill it at this thing. And, you gotta see uh, this. You know, yeah. Yeah. So like just no teacher told me I was smart. They always told me I was difficult, like kindergarten, preschool. Even after that, they said I was difficult. I was defiant. But really, I was just bored and, you know, um, just really wanted to learn something. And, you know, they weren't providing those opportunities. Mm. Shout out to her. Yeah. <laughs> what was her name? Miss Egan? is Miss Egan. How are your time stables these days? Uh, I'm pretty good at like. Um, Mine are weak. Yeah. But like, I can't write that bad. It's like my wrists, <laughs> <laughs> like arthritis now. So I couldn't do it. But. <laughs> Um, I'm but still pretty here, good. Yeah. 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 Seven times eight. Like yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> the I only one I remember it. always like that, because I never really like memorized them too deep because I just had some wacky ass math teacher. But seven times seven equals 49. <laughs> I know, yeah. No question. Oh, yeah. that every time it's 49. <laughs> that I know. All right, Jenny. How can folks find uh, you and your work in the ways that you would like to be found? And how can they support in the ways that you'd like to be supported? Um, they can look up the Youth Council's website at shynations.org, donate to um, our Venmo or PayPal um, so we can continue that work. Or like come and volunteer at the garden, clean up, haul some boulders for us or <laughs> like something. Beautiful. Thank you so much for chopping up with us and sharing uh, your thoughts and your time and your brilliance. Uh, we're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm at Damon underscore AF. And we'll be back on the line, continuing our education suite, talking with the folks reshaping the culture of our city, world, and classrooms for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Education. education.